Jennifer Fraser is author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. She has a PhD in comparative literature and The Bullied Brain is her fourth book. She draws on medical, neuroscientific, and neurobiological research to examine what happens to brains that are bullied and abused. Jennifer is an award-winning educator and works as a coach, consultant, and international presenter. This podcast is a dialogue that works in the first season like a coaching session. Eric shares his childhood experiences of being abused, and Jennifer discusses the implications for brain and for recovery. Our goal is to use Eric's childhood abuse like a case study as most people don't learn about their brains or about how abuse impacts their brains. The research is clear that the brain is innately wired to repair and recover when we know the harm done and the evidence-based practices to heal. This is the focus of Jennifer's book, but it comes to life in a podcast as Eric bravely walks us through the abuse done to him and his many strategies for healing his neurological scars. For all those who have suffered bullying, abuse, and trauma, join us to look at it through the lens of brain science and learn ways to repair the harm done. Welcome back, everyone, to the Bullied Brain Podcast with Jennifer Frazier and myself, Eric Jorgensen. This is going to be the fourth installment. You don't have to listen to these in order. There's, It's not a series in, in the sense that the previous episodes are building upon each other, but I do think it helps contextualize. You need to listen to the first one at the very least, because that's where I give my background. But after that, you can listen really in any order you want because Jennifer and I are picking a topic and unpacking it. Today, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And we don't script these ahead of time. We don't we don't talk about what we're going to talk about ahead of time. I have some very strong feelings about forgiveness, and I believe Jennifer does too. So I will I will let Jennifer take the lead here, and then I will just follow her guidance as I usually do. Well, I was, I was in a conversation. I was being interviewed by Mark Devine. And Mark Devine, like his name suggests, is a sort of a divine human being. He is a former Navy SEAL, and he comes from a very abusive childhood, as many, many do, in a sense. You know, it's a, it's a big problem in our culture. There's, there's people suffering too much and kids suffering too much. And so uh, he's a really interesting figure because he's spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how to navigate the world and his life in a recovery mode from the abuse rather than just letting the abuse sort of drive who he is and how he behaves. And this is Eric, as of course, our this is what our conversation is always about. I mean, we're that's what we're interested in. We're looking, we're using your experience, meeting up with my experience to talk about how can we have a more insightful understanding of ourselves? How can we work through trauma? What does the brain tell us about it? What does the body respond with in terms of trauma? It's all relevant to, to many of us because many of us have traumatic pasts or we're, we're living even in a traumatic present. So Mark Devine, the reason why I bring him up in the context of forgiveness is he was saying that my book, The Bullied Brain, is really important and people should read it. And then he was talking about how his father never listens to his show and never supports him in that regard at all. And he started to laugh because I said, your dad should read The Bullied Brain. And he laughed and said, he's the last guy that will ever read that book because he doesn't want to change. He doesn't want to be different. He doesn't want to face probably that he might've been harmful to his kids. I mean, no, no one wants to face that. You know, it's it's one of the worst parenting moments ever for any of us, you know, depending on 
what kind of a parent we are to, to think that we might have hurt our kids. And I had to put that little qualifier in, Eric, for your mother. But yeah, so Mark Devine, I, he said, you know, I said, you're laughing, but really it's not funny the way your father behaves. The fact that he ignores you, that he doesn't want to know everything about you, that he doesn't want to learn from you makes me feel like that's really sad. That's not funny. And Mark Devine said, I've forgiven my father. And I was like, oh, how did you do that? <laughs> because I have a very difficult time forgiving the people that abused me as a child. It wasn't my family, it was teachers. And I have a very hard time forgiving the teachers who abused my son, you know. And I will say, ago. I have never forgiven my parents. I've just I don't care anymore, but I, well, I do care, but I don't, I'm not finding the right words. I used to be really angry about it, like so angry about it. And what I realized for me, this is not the same thing as forgiveness, at least not in my mind. But what I realized is me being angry was only bothering me. They, there was, they didn't care. It was not impacting them in any way. And that still gave them some kind of power over me. So I said, I'm not going to continue being angry, but I didn't forgive them, at least not in my understanding of what forgiveness is of, I absolve you of any ill will or, or what have you for, for doing whatever you did to me. I mean, that's how I kind of understand forgiveness, but I, I don't know, Jennifer, do you, what, to you, what is forgiveness? Well, I'm, I'm in the same place that you are, where I try really hard to understand why people act the way they do, why they're abusive. And there's lots of good reasons for it. Vast majority of people come by it honestly. They were abused and they're perpetuating the cycle. I get that. I get intergenerational trauma. I understand all of it. However, so that's one side of me. My researcher side, I really understand it. I've read a ton on it. Another part of myself says that being an adult, we're all on that journey. All of us have choices and we can choose to be someone who's abusive and we can choose to be someone who fights that impulse within ourselves. Okay. So then I'm like, okay, then I'm back to the Eric position where I'm like, it's really hard to forgive someone who hasn't apologized. It's really hard to forgive someone who doesn't take accountability for the harm they do. And, you know, we're watching unfold in a whole variety of ways politically Individuals who do not take responsibility for destroying a country and, and many people like we're watching Putin do in Ukraine. Putin's not apologizing. He's not holding himself accountable. In fact, he's publicly saying that it's the West that's the aggressor. It's neo-Nazism in Ukraine. And it's like, I feel like if we start to follow along with that kind of madness, that sort of gaslighting, that inability of certain individuals to actually take adult accountability for what they do, we are doomed as a society. Yeah, and we've seen politicians do that since there's been politicians. You know, it, it's not a left or a right or a Democrat or Republican in the United States saying this is being recorded March 31st. You know, when, when word came out recently that, you know, former President Donald Trump was indicted. You know, by a grand jury. Where that goes remains to be seen, but it's it, he's not, you know, when Nixon resigned, he didn't apologize. You know, when Clinton got caught in his lie, he didn't apologize. So we have a history of people leading by example of never being, never, never holding themselves accountable. And, and then 
nobody else holding him accountable, really. I mean, and I don't I know think, where I'm going with that, Jennifer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think I think the accountability piece is actually very important, whether the person is able to acknowledge the harm they do or not, or the line they cross or not, or the wrongdoing or fraud or whatever it is that they do. If they're unable to acknowledge it, well, that's their own psychosis. It doesn't mean that society needs to kowtow to their vision of events, which is backed by their own psychosis. That's where it starts to get really unhealthy. And I mean, one of the key things we know from research is individuals who are narcissists, for example, or they suffer from psychopathology, they are always in their own mind, the victim. Like they literally truly believe that they are the subject of a witch hunt and that they're being persecuted. So no matter how many wrongs they commit, they are always the victim. And when you start to listen to that kind of gaslighting and, and you don't measure it with facts and you know justice or you know, <laughs> systems we've created like juries and judges and lawyers to argue both sides and then we weigh the evidence. I mean, we have these elaborate processes to stop individuals from getting away with with murder literally and and when the system breaks down like i don't know watching the watching the western world come together to face the threat from russia and beyond is deeply concerning but also there's something empowering in that it's it's making a decision that we need to stand strong together because you know, the threat within is starting to destabilize the most powerful and significant country, the US and the rest of the world is watching going, no, please. Yeah, yeah, and we can do a deeper dive in narcissism because my, my mother was the victim, you know, not, I mean, to take, us, to take it off the global scale and tie it back to what we had originally, you know, like we had said, so, you know, with regards to forgiveness, do you recommend people forgive their their offenders? Do you do you recommend people like I'm I'm not proposing that every time somebody slights you, be it cutting you off in traffic or bumping into you in the supermarket, that you should carry on, you know, a, you know, till your death, this this animosity towards them. So I guess in some ways I do forgive a lot of things where it's just like, yeah, whatever. And I, I try to give people grace. Like if somebody cuts me off or blows by me on the highway or whatever, just rude, I'm like, okay, well, maybe they have to go to the bathroom because I've been there, you know, or or maybe they have a sick kid at home. Or I try to think of something to, to reframe it because it's not personal. But when you have a parent or, you know, a trusted advisor or or somebody who has power over you, it is personal. I don't know how it could not be personal. And when I was the nightmare boss that I was, although I don't feel that I was attacking people personally, I can't imagine how they would have not taken it that way. But I, I this is with the, hind, the, the benefit of hindsight after 12 plus years of working on myself. You know what I mean? And I wouldn't expect them to forgive me. Unless it gives them some kind of peace. Well, you know, there's so many different ways of going about it. I mean, one of the ways that I know people recover from trauma is they apologize for their own perpetuation of it. So if you went back to some of your people and said, I've done 12 years of work. One of the things I regret is how I treated you. I've 
taken a hard look at myself and I, I know that it came from trauma and that's not an excuse. All of us as adults have the ability to choose and I chose wrong because I didn't know any better. And I just want you to know I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I like when I'm a bad parent, like if I yell at my kids, I mean, my kids are grown up now, but back in the day, I mean, they just yell back at me now. <laughs> but back in the day when I had a power imbalance, I had power over them and they scared me or something, or they mistreated one another, and I yelled, I would go and apologize after. I would say, I was out of control. I was very stressed out, no excuse. I'm just really sorry that I acted like that. And what I find is kids, and I, as a teacher, there were times I had to apologize too for being in just awful. One time I got really angry at two students I was very close to, like temper tantrum style angry. Yep. And I even swore, like, I've, I've only done that once in 20 years as a teacher. And I, again, I'm not excusing it. And I apologize to both of them. And I just felt sick about it. And when I think back on it now, I, I still feel badly about it. But I, you know, I just crossed that line. I became, I became activated. I became furious. And, you know, it was, it was righteous anger on one level. Like, they really had done something bad. <laughs> but there's still no excuse. And it's embarrassing to be an adult to lose your cool. Really embarrassing. But, you know, you apologize. That's all you can do is try and make amends by, by acknowledging wrongdoing. And this is like, when you talk about your mother, mm. not gonna happen, never. Well, she's, she's dead, so she can't, so. Well, that's what I'm saying. She's dead and she'd never apologize anyways. Right. And I haven't apologized. It's interesting, you know, that you say that because I've never even considered apologizing to people that work for me in mass. You know, I, I'm connected to some of them on Facebook, so I guess I could. But I feel like it would be, I'm not sure who it would be for. Would it be to, to, and maybe this goes back to the diagnosis, you know, of my diagnosis, my, you know, the personality disorder that I don't feel compelled to apologize and I don't understand what value it would bring you know talking it out if to me it's like well it just sounds like i'd be making an excuse you know i hadn't considered that it would be of any value to them until you know to you said something and even then i'm i'm as i'm talking it out i'm still not feeling like i have this inner core belief that it would bring any value it's more of the academic i trust jennifer she really knows what she's talking about so i should probably listen to her but there's no emotional tie to that. And I'm guessing that would probably be because of the, you know, not because of the diagnosis, because the diagnosis is just a label, but, you know, the, the things that led to the diagnosis, perhaps. I don't know, Jennifer. I mean, I'm just, like I said, this is why we do this, right? I mean, so it's really I get to be your guinea pig. <laughs> no, no, it's really I mean, it's, thank you for the lovely compliment. I, I can be trusted, that's for sure. I'm always learning. I don't... I'm always trying to get to a place of wisdom, but I'm certainly not there. But you know, one of the things, my husband is really good at apologizing to the point where I even think he's too good at it. You know, he's one of those guys that's like really quick to say sorry and get off the hook for something. Cause so I tell him, I'm like, you know, saying sorry over and over again, isn't okay. You got to say sorry, really mean it and then change your conduct. So we have this kind of thing, but he pointed out to me early on in our relationship, that I wasn't good at saying sorry. And it's true. And it's, I'm still not, I'm not great at it today, but I work really hard on it. So I realized though, I had kind of an epiphany moment 
where I realized that it's a, it's hard for me to say sorry to him because it means I have to admit or I have to see that I hurt somebody that I really actually do care about. So it's easier maybe in a professional relationship, you've gone on with your life, you've done all this deep dive into learning about your trauma and how it shaped the way you behaved, but you're not really super close to those people that you were kind of, you know, yep. not your best self with. When it's your partner though, then then I, you know, it would almost make me feel like crime. I, I just, I was too weak to be able to truly face the fact that I'd hurt him. So it was hard for me to say sorry. Yeah, and when I was married, when my wife was alive, I <laughs> I think I would rather do walk across hot coals or something instead of saying sorry to her. I've gotten better with my fiance. With my fiance, I think I'm much, much better at it. But yeah, the and we don't have time in this episode to go down the the, the dumpster fire. That was my marriage at times, but <laughs> I think everybody's marriage goes through dumpster fire phases. I really do. I mean, if you're married for a long time, I I don't, there's some people out there that really do have those kind of fairy tale marriages, but I would say the majority of us don't. Yeah. Well, we'll leave that for another and then we'll see what you say because she had her own trauma and, but that, that forgiveness piece, I think back on it, right? Like I was trying to be a better husband towards the end. I didn't know it was going to be the end when I moved back from Cuba to live with her again, I wanted to be a better husband. I wanted to, you know, finally be the guy I was supposed to be. And I ended up having two years with her before she died. But, you know, I, I don't know. And I think that was one of the pieces that was, was hard for me after she died was there was so much left unsaid, so much unresolved, you know, I mean, going back to this forgiveness piece, right? Like I, I wish she could see who I was now. I don't know that we would still be married if she was still alive. I mean, I, I, if I'm being realistic, we probably wouldn't be, you know, just because of the way things were going. But, you know, it, I, I just wish that she had gotten to see it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I, I think I'm willing to forgive some people. You know, again, depends what they did to me. I don't think I'll ever forgive my dad. He's still alive. I, I don't see any reason to. I don't want a relationship with him. I don't see what it does for me. You know, I, I don't, I don't understand how it would help me to say, I forgive you, especially if I'm not sincere. Because like I said, I don't forgive him. I think he, he's a grown ass man. He didn't have to do that. He could have made different choices. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I really wonder at times if forgiveness is unhealthy. You know, when people can't be held accountable and they can't hold themselves accountable, you letting them off the hook for how they were is maybe not the healthiest thing. But you know, what Mark Devine said, which I thought was very interesting, is he said he's, he came to forgive his parents by, he went to this very intensive retreat and it was eight hours a day mindfulness. And the eight hours a day mindful meditation was very specifically like laser focused on only connecting to the people that mistreated you. And he said that the what they had to do was they had to see the person. So he was seeing his mother and father as children growing up. And in that exercise of seeing them, he said, you know, I saw things I probably never should have seen. But as he watched them, be abused and traumatized. It allowed him to let go of 
is like what you were saying, let go of the anger, I guess, against them and be almost more open and joyful to the point where he could laugh about his father and what his father was and did rather than just feel that ongoing pain. But is that forgiveness? Like I've let go of the anger. I don't know that I don't, I don't, I don't consider that the same thing as forgiving. He calls it, he called it forgiveness. Okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm with you where it's a, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure if certain types of forgiveness are even healthy. Like I said, I, I have not forgiven the teachers who abused us as children. And I've not forgiven the ones that have abused, that abused my son. And until they come to me and say that they regret what they did and they take full responsibility for it. And they're particularly concerned and by the way in which they lied about what they did and re-victimized all the students that spoke up about them until I hear all of that. I'm, I just, I'm like you, I just don't, I can't go to that place. Forgive. How can you forgive people that don't accept what they've done? Well, and why do you have to forgive them? I mean, I think people say you need to forgive for the reasons that you were talking about for your own health, that holding on to anger, holding on to. Yeah. But again, is, 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 is letting go of the anger, the same thing as forgiving or am I, maybe I'm splitting hairs. I don't know. Because I have gone, I have wronged people. I I, I think I, in the last episode I shared about, I had a very physical response to stress when I was younger, I, you know, in terms of assault, you know, sometimes assault with a weapon. And, you know, I've, I did own the fact that I overreacted and it was, to your point about not an excuse, but it's, it's like almost how I would describe it is, is like, I'm a passenger in my body at a certain point. Like I I I I I feel like I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it's like I have no control over my nerve endings or my muscles. And then afterwards, I get the shakes, and you know, I re- it's not like I black out. I remember everything I did. I'm just so filled with rage that you know, like I can't get into a fight because I'm not. If I get into a fight, it's not about putting the other person down it's it's making sure the other person never gets back up again because if they get back up again they can come back for revenge you know it's so interesting you'd say that because i mean that is such a brain situation so when you say i'm just a passenger in my body really what you're saying is well what you're saying is very eloquent like that makes instant sense to me but it's also from a brain point of view the brain has taken over completely the stress response system is now acting independently of you, Eric. You, Eric, mindful Eric, has done tons of work, Eric, et cetera, is gone. And well, this and I- this hasn't happened since I've done the work. I mean, this is this is my tw- in my 20s, in my late teens. This is a long, I mean, this is 30 years ago, you know, 25, 30 years ago, this is when this happened. A long time ago. So what is so critically important about this to me, and it's what my my work is on, is you are a, a shining example of how the brain can be rewired. You know, people, if you look at police officers, for example, right now, who, you know, some of the tragic situations we've recently seen, where they are out of control, and even they're operating as a group out of control. And it's, I mean, people die. It's just, it's horrifying. But you know for a fact that the man that goes home and has dinner with his children and wife or goes out with his buddies and has a beer is not the same guy. Why? Because the brain is taken over, the trauma is taken over, 
and I'm not making excuses for it. That's not the point of this. The point is, if people don't do the work like you did, the work to rewire the traumatized brain, they're gonna they're gonna live this way, and it's it's detrimental to them and to society. But I'll tell you, Jennifer, I'm still afraid of losing control. Yeah. Like I, I actively avoid situations where I think my blood pressure might go up. Probably smartly so. I mean, there's I I was writing a piece about this. I can't remember if you and I talked about it. Where I'm I'm writing the piece. And I use three examples. Two of them are contemporary and one is from literature, but they're examples of a stabbing that occurs, fatal stabbings in all three cases. So in the recent ones, there's a girl working in an LA fancy Los Angeles furniture store. A guy comes in off the street who's homeless and instead of following the impulse, so you, as you describe, you've got a stress response that instantly goes life and death, but it goes to fight. She does, she's not a trained fighter like yourself. She's not going to win. So what she's got to do is flight, right? She's got to take off, get out of there as fast as possible. She's alone in a store with somebody who could potentially be violent. But she doesn't because she doesn't have what's called the emotion concept that says danger, fear, run away. She's probably never encountered someone like this before. She hasn't seen it on TV, whatever. So instead of getting herself the hell out of there, she texts her friend this guy's giving me a bad vibe. That's all it takes for him to kill her. He stabs her to death because he's mentally ill. Okay, so that's an example. Well, pause there. You can't say because he's mentally ill is why he stabbed her. That's Well, he was mentally ill. Yeah, but yeah, yes. I, I just don't want people associating mentally ill with, with you know, murder. And, because, and, be, and here's why, Jennifer. Here's why it triggered me. Because veterans with PTSD, the first thought is they're going to be violent because of mental illness or whatever. So I just, I don't want to leave it with that association. No, that's, that's why I got triggered. So I, I no, just, I, no. you're so right to correct. And that's, those are such important points. When I said that in my careless way, what I really was trying to say is it wasn't as if it wasn't relational. She hadn't done anything. It was random. It was just a pointless act due to the fact that he was suffering something within him. Right, so, he could have been having a delusion and saw her as an enemy. And... Anything like that, yeah. So I just meant, I meant unstable in that regard. Right. It had nothing to do with her. Thank yeah. you. But no, very important to clarify. So that is the sympathetic nervous system that's not working. Her sympathetic nervous system, her stress response system that's designed to save her life by evolution malfunctioned. And it's a, with a tragic outcome, right? So we need to, we need to trust our trauma response except that sometimes it, if you are repeatedly hurt by people especially people that should be in positions of of trust and love and care over you if you're repeatedly traumatized by those people you can well imagine your stress response system is haywire it starts to interpret all things as threats and that makes perfect sense and when they when you look at someone's brain that suffers from this you will see on a brain scan they are likely to have a very enlarged amygdala, which is the threat response. It's, I mean, it does many things, but it's watching for danger. And of course you're pouring lots of resources into it and you're starting to see threats everywhere you turn. Yeah, and I don't like, like when an example would be, I hate being touched. It's, it's threatening, right? Yeah. And you know, it's really sad because as a child, of course, that's one of the most important, like in the research, they find that children are much more adept at recovering from stress when they are held by their parents, their mothers in particular, 
that the mother's care for them, the physical touching, affection and care is really, really good at helping their stress system calm down. And instead of getting that, you got touch in the form of violence and harm and pain. So, I mean, you can just well imagine, like it's really quite impressive that you've, you've taken this and turned it around and rewired your brain. Like it's really impressive. And it means that other people like your parents could have done that too. And they didn't. And that's why we're doing this podcast, right? Is to not to get you to toot my horn and, and pat me on the back, but rather to give people hope. And that, yeah. that's what I want out of it. I want people to have hope. Yeah. And the science is ridiculously hopeful. The science says we all have neuroplasticity, which means we all have the capacity to change our brains, which also means we can hold people to higher account. We should not enable them in positions of prestige and power and influence and, and destructive behaviors. It's not doing anything for them. All it does is reinforce a, a very destructive wiring in the brain. And that doesn't help anybody. And I, I also think it means we should relook at how we incarcerate people and what we're doing when we incarcerate people. Yes. You know, Michael Merzenich, who read, who read my book, then he wrote the foreword to the book, and then he dialogued at great length with me about the content. He's really moving forward in, he's just so keen on prison reform. And he's created a program that's being implemented and piloted in Pennsylvania, where an inmate who's done you know, nothing, nothing spectacular, but they get the choice. You can do the brain training program for six months and start to rewire your brain, get your organic brain health back, learn about why you behave and do the things you do, or you can be incarcerated for six months. The choice is yours. What do you want to do? And, you know, really, there's just so much we could be doing. Like one of the saddest things, I don't know if you remember this in my book, but in the first introductory chapter, I talk about how 70%, that's seven zero, 70% of inmates in the California prison system were in foster care. And I mean, are those bad people? Is this a moral crisis? Or does it tell you that they're all traumatized, really badly traumatized individuals who, I mean, I feel like they should have a second chance. I feel like we should, as a society, have a responsibility to rewire their brains. It's not their fault that they, they didn't have parents that could care for them. And then they ended up in the foster care system. I mean, we just had in Canada, an 11 year old boy in foster care. He just committed suicide. I mean, it's just wrong. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of places we could go there, but I think we've covered a lot of heavy topics this episode. So we'll make it a little shorter. And with regards to, to forgiveness versus, you know, the, the semantics around forgiveness, you know, listeners can chime in. You know, this is going to be on Apple Podcasts or wherever. You can make comments. I by by the time this airs, I will have had a, an email that you can send emails to, and Jennifer and I will be happy to have create a dialogue with you guys. Our our future goals for this podcast, you know, after season one, the story of Eric, is really we want to we want to hear from listeners who have who have gone through their own trauma, and I don't. I don't want anybody to say, well, it wasn't as bad as yours or, or mine was worse than yours. It's not, I, I, I get enough of that in the disability world where, where there's this, 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 this need to compete. And, and that's not what this is about. It's not good or bad, or I'm stronger than you are. Or, it's none of that BS. It's really about, do you want to do the work to help yourself? And are you willing to, to accept the fact there's, there's, 
probably going to be setbacks. I know there have been for me, but that's that's where we're at. That's where I want this podcast to go. I think, Jennifer, that's where you want to go. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Oh, no, I, I completely want to go that direction. And and like we said, when we first started this, you and me talking about it and dialoguing, we were, our first impulse was to hear from others and bring them onto the show and, and unpack their story. Not so much as a, a victim story, but way more, uh, okay, so if we have neuroplasticity and this has happened, what are ways that you've rewired and sharing those stories of, you know, we all have scrambled wiring in our brain from whatever's happened to us. And what is it that we do? And that's a very interesting, I, I think, topic to share. Like, what do we all do independently? And what does the evidence say? Like, what does the research say we can do to get stronger, better, healthier brains? Because there's a ton of research out there on it, but it's not even talked about in school. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we're quick to talk about mental health, but we're not quick to talk about brain health. So yeah, I mean, and I think your story is very emblematic and it takes courage to talk about. So once, once we've gotten everybody to the place where you've courageously shared and I will chime in with some of my stuff. And like I said before too, I'm on a learning journey. I'm certainly not at the place I want to be as a person, you know, I'm not recovered. I'm not fully better. I, it's a daily, and like you say, I have my setbacks and it's all, it's all relevant. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's where we're at listeners and your feedback's always welcome. You're more likely to get a response if it's constructive, but feedback is always welcome. And so thanks, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Bullied Brain. As a reminder, neither Jennifer nor I are licensed clinical physicians, psychologists, or mental health professionals. Everything we are talking about during this podcast is anecdotal as it relates to me, Eric Jorgensen. If you are looking for help or you would like to seek answers to your own questions, we encourage you to seek out a mental health professional in your area. Please do not try to do or overcome any trauma on your own. Thanks for listening.